All right, I like, I, like I said, I like theological problems. <laughs> and uh, the problem here in the text is um, this leper's a problem. Uh, Christ begins, this is the beginning of the ministry that Matthew records. Matthew's very Jewish. And so, they and so the whole point of Christ touching a leper would be very, would be very, very clear to him. And so uh, I'm going to, how do we, how do we attack this problem? How do we kind of dig our hands into it? Um, and what is the problem? That's what I'm going to focus on today. And because I don't have my notes, I'm going to be all over the place, but that's okay. You know, last week, um, somebody asked a question while I was speaking. I like, I enjoyed the dialogue more than monologue. Like I get a thrill out of it. Now, when I worked on the street and worked with people off the street, I found that if I let them ask questions, it, there was no telling what I would get, right? But in this context, I mean, you can ask me a question. Raise your hand and ask me a question. I don't care. Uh, I might as well put, put all this education to some use and, uh, and get something out of it. You might as well get something out of it. And, uh, and we could have some fun with it. Uh, all right, we're going to read the text. Now, we're, gonna, we're getting into chapter 2, and I included the next story in the sequence of stories, because I think it's going to give us some help understanding the role that sickness plays and how sickness is understood, etc. So, um, but it can be very simple. Uh, I'm going to try to make an argument today about the Bible having a very large story of healing and forgiveness. And, 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 and the, the healing story here with Jesus and the leper is one little picture of the unfolding story of redemption. And so that's the argument I'm going to make, is that Christ, the argument that Christ makes. So, um, and I'll try to ex explain the problem, and we can jump in as we go along. And um, so we're, we're here with a leper, and has anybody ever seen leprosy? Uh, uh, I don't think I've ever seen it firsthand. I couldn't think of it. I've seen pictures, you know. Often uh, there's a nose disfigured. Um, I was reading uh, Leviticus this week, and it's kind of icky. In fact, there's one of the passages that talks about itches. And do you ever read about itching, and you start scratching yourself? You ever done that? Like, you start reading about it, and you're like, or you hear something about it, and you just start scratching? And, it, <laughs> and I'm doing that. I'm like, I start checking, checking, like, is there any weird rashes on my hands? And I'm a hypochondriac. You know, I'm like, I, I started, I'm not even kidding, I started worrying if I had leprosy. I just, this is the kind of person <laughs> I am. I, like, started examining myself. And uh, trying to figure it out. So um, let's begin reading here. As we've seen before, this is all proving the thesis of Mark that this man, Jesus, is not just a man. He is the son of God. And the leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town that was out in the desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic 
carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let me pray. Father, give me words to speak that come from you by the power of your Spirit. Um, You know about the brokenness of, of my spirit in our hearts all of us together. So we ask that you would speak. And I pray this in Christ. Amen. The problem is right there in the problem. I'm going to say it's an ethical problem. It's a theological problem. There's even a textual problem. This is really a strange text. So in 141, you notice it says Christ was moved with what? Moved to pity. Now, there's a problem here, right off the bat, by the way. The textual tradition is very confusing about this word because one of the ancient manuscripts says he was angry. It's really strange because, look, pay pay attention to this. Scribes sometimes, when they were transmitting, when they were kind of copying the scriptures, that's how it happened. It all happened by hand. And you'd see a copy, and you'd, they, somebody would write it down, and somebody followed him and wrote it down. And you could make money doing it too. It's one of the ways. It was like um, an ancient form of a Xerox. And in fact, sometimes a whole room full of people would would be sitting there, and somebody would call out the words. And anyway, transmission of the texts is an interesting story, but this is a big difference, don't you think? Pity and angry. He was furious, or was he compassionate? Which one? Now. Which one makes more sense? Which one kind of clicks more with who you think Jesus is? Anybody? There's my hint. There's my hint right there. Pity, right? Everybody. Now, now, it is plausible, more than plausible, it's likely, more than likely, it's good logical principle that somebody would change the word angry to pity, wouldn't they? Why would they do that? Why would they want to change angry to pity? It's a lot softer. It's a lot more winsome. Uh, It it is assumed, and I think it's probably pretty reliable, that that the the angry answer, some of the scribes felt was too harsh. Now, the pity pity idea comes in Christ too, and Christ Christ is both angry and merciful all over the stories of the Gospels. Okay, he is very often. But in Mark... 
he tends to be angry. Now, the reason I think that's kind of interesting is that I think angry is the better, is the better textual tradition. And honestly, I want Jesus to be angry right now because I want somebody to be angry about people with their noses falling off whose bodies have begun to reek with death and who have to scream out unclean and don't have any friends. <laughs> I like a Jesus who's angry about that, who sees it and goes, this is awful. I don't like it because leprosy is awful. It is an awful social consequence, an awful personal consequence, an awful physical consequence, right? It is that destructive. So the idea of Jesus being angry here in Matthew 1, 4, in Mark 141, I'm sorry, it, to me, I'm very comfortable with it. And I think, in fact, is a Jesus who, who I think, it, because he's angry, he's going to do something about it, you see? He's not merely futilely angry. He's not angry in some way that's powerless. He's angry in a way that he can fix it, and he has come to fix it. And so, uh, so there's a textual problem, but there's also a, a legal problem. And the legal problem is in Leviticus, Levitical law. Now, how many of you have read the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, so a fair number of you. How many of you fell asleep at some point? Okay, good, thank you. It's all the same hands. It can get a little ponderous. And it has three divisions. One is the distinctively the moral law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not steal. And, and broadly, we're familiar with this. I mean, just recently, uh, these, the Ten Commandments, for example, were taken, or the Ten Words were taken down uh, from schools in Birmingham. I remember when that happened in, in Alabama when I was down south. And first, there's the moral law. Now... But interesting, we have some lawyers here, too. Uh, and um, there's hope for you, too. And, uh, and so, the second part of the law, though, is the civil law. And, in fact, it's kind of, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating transition that happens. There's the moral law, but then there's, like, the civil, and it's a, it's a theocratic civil law. And what it does is it, it winds up having an extensive what's called case law. And so um, uh, you shall not, uh, let's put it, I'll take one, the, uh, the, uh, the command, uh, you shall not steal. And if your ox, if Paul's ox gored my ox and killed it, that would be a form of theft. And so there's an entire passage in the Old Testament, in the law, about how if his ox gores my ox, um, and it's known to be an ox that gores other oxen, He's responsible. But, if he, and it has all these like cases, all these like clauses, all these clauses to explain it. But there's a third part of that ancient law, and this is where it gets kind of boring and kind of tiresome and really, really ponderous. And it's called the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law. No bacon. You can't eat bacon. You can't touch a woman when she is menstruating. You can't, I mean, that's, it, gets, it gets weird. And honestly, these laws and an expansion of these laws called the Talmud, these are still in force in many Jewish households today. And the ceremonial law is this huge 
it's almost like, it's hard to describe it. It's like this huge um, uh, nimbus, like around the law. It, it doesn't have any, intri- there's nothing intrinsically moral in the question of whether you touch somebody or if you touch a woman who's menstruating. That doesn't make any sense. That, there's no moral quality to that event. Or, conversely, the touching of somebody who's sick. The leper. And the leper is under the ceremonial law. He is controlled under the ceremonial The leper uh, and, and, and a dead body. You can't touch a dead body and you get unclean. And, and this is all about this concept of being unclean. And what is the purpose of this third tier of the law? That's, that People tear their hair out about this. Because, because um, when you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what you'll notice is the writer moves back and forth between these very easily. Yes, Amy. Sure. Sure. Well, it's a really good question. The ancients thought it was transmitted by touch, but we don't know that it is now. Although proximity, there, uh, uh, people who are around lepers can get leprosy, but we know it's not, it's, it's not a well-understood disease. Uh, leprosy is skin conditions, as described in the ancient law, though, have to do with rashes, boils, itchiness. It makes me, it's all, it makes me feel squidgy. Uh, it's like, it's just not really unpleasant. And so yeah, it's a broad category. We don't know that it's necessarily only leprosy. But the, uh, this was a, and, and I guess it's caused by a virus, I believe. Or is it, I can't remember. Is it a bacteria? Is it a bacteria? And uh, it's not a virus, it's a bacteria. But uh, it's not, uh, there's different strains of it as well. And uh, in the ancient world, uh, so cleanliness does have something to do with this. In other words, uh, being constantly clean, uh, and, like we are in our day age, we tend to be very clean. Uh, uh, because, you know, the, the, so in the ancient world, there are all these rituals too. Like whenever you went to somebody's house, you'd wash your hands or you wash your feet all the time. Because there, and there are ways in the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law has a function, by the way. It does have a function, even when it comes to bacon, let's say. Um, Pork is a notorious uh, disease carrier, especially uh, ancient pork. Modern pork's been bred out. But um, it does have a, um, what you might call, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of that, like a functional, a functional uh, kind of, it might have a functional use at times, some of the ceremonial uh, uh, admonitions, but sometimes it's not clear at all. Does that answer your question? The second, though, function of the ceremonial law, so it has a functional law, is that it, it, it has a way of describing God as holy. It's just, there's something about it. It's like God is like, I am totally holy. What does holy mean? I am not like you. Because a lot of the ceremonial law has to do with the temple worship. So, for example, uh, David, we're going to look at this Bible study. David, not this week, but in two weeks, David comes in and he wants to eat some of the bread that's in the church. And the, and the priest goes, you can't eat that bread. And he's like, we haven't touched, we haven't kept ourselves from women. It's not that women are unclean. They hadn't had sex. They hadn't had sex. 
And David, David knows about some of the temple regulations about intimacy and about whether you can do the things with God. So it's a, lot of it's, a lot of it was to reflect God is holy. But then there's a third, there's a third function. The people are holy. They're supposed to be different. It was a way for them to be different from everybody around them. It distinguished them. Interestingly enough, I mean, the le- even the way the lepers are treated is better than the other nations, way the other nations treated them. Right? There was, still, there was still mercy in the law and a way back. There was still, it's really, really odd too. Um, there's all these rituals there, and the priest has to look at the skin and he has to look at it a week later to see where, how it's progressed. And there's a great detail about it. I have a feeling that skin problems are, put it this way, has any of us lived in a third world country for any length of time? Skin problems are a problem in India, aren't they? I mean, they are. It's just, you get different levels of, they become a rife problem. So anyway, so the people are holy. God is holy in his worship. And there's some functional benefits to, honestly, to to not eating shellfish, for example. But there's a final use. And that's what I want to look here. This is the big, this is the big one. Take a look here. In verse 44, Christ does this miracle. Now, I don't know if you believe in miracles or not or believe who Jesus is. That's quite a different question. But if he's the son of God, then him doing this is not a big deal. Except, of course, he's violating a portion of the Old Testament ceremonial law, which he claims is authoritative. Look what he says here. See that you say nothing to anyone. Do you see that? It's, it, it, he talks to the leper afterwards. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. That is Leviticus 12 through 14. It's exactly what he's supposed to do. And he tells him, go back and obey the ceremonial law that you've been obeying so far. Go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, an offering. It's part of the temple worship, right? So he would, uh, he would go, the priest would inspect him. And the priest would see that priest, and by the way, the priest would know him. These are small churches with small priests. You know, like everybody knows each other. And they know this guy was a leper. And because his family, you know, was embarrassed. You know, all that stuff's there, right? Like everybody knows everything. And so the priest looks at him and he, and, and, and he says, go. And look, listen to how it ends. He says, for a proof to them. Who's he, what's he proving? This is how Christ understands the Old Testament and the ancient writings some almost 1,800 years before this event. 1,800 B.C., these laws are written down. What is Christ's understanding of the ceremonial law? The, item, the, the number four down there I was about to write, which we're going to write now. Is this proving something? Anybody know what it's proving? Who Jesus is and what the what the what the real we put the real purpose of the ceremonial law. You know what it is? It is to predict, anticipate, and inform Jesus Christ. Christ is saying here that the event 
where he touches the leper. I'm not going to treat you like a leper. I'll treat Paul like a leper. Where he touches the leper. That event, according to Leviticus 4, means Jesus is now unclean, can't go to the temple, he's dirty, he's got he's to spend days away from everybody. He can't. But Christ isn't unclean for some Why isn't he unclean? Well, he's breaking law. And he touches him, can't do that, heals him. And then Christ is saying this event is a proof because the, the ancient religious peoples should have known what Leviticus was about and should have known that the great Son of God had come who, for whom the ceremonial law was like a stage. If you notice there's some billboards now um, that they stretch out the, new, the covers now. Have you noticed that? Instead of like wallpapering them on. Uh, they used to be back in the day they would take some wet stuff and they'd, they'd wallpaper a, a, a billboard on and then you see it peeling off later as time went on. But now I've noticed, you see the guys out there, they stretch like a big plastic sheet over it, which is already printed with the sign. The ceremonial law is a big plastic sheet put on a billboard in the ancient world to say, God, the holy God, is coming to heal. The holy God will come to heal. And all of these ceremonial parts and pieces that are so odd and strange, perhaps off-putting, perhaps, perhaps uh, strange to us culturally, had meaning for those ancients, but now, 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 he's saying, this proves who I am. One greater, the greatness of the law is in me. You see, the law, it's kind of amazing. Christ winds up saying is, the scriptures don't prove me. I prove the scriptures. I get chilled just saying that. So Christ, in 30 AD, points back to the Levitical, the Levitical rites. And this is kind of amazing. This is the claim about the Bible how Christ understands the Bible, looks back to Levitical rites and says that their meaning and their legitimacy and their purpose is summed up in me and the things I do and what I will do at the cross in my body. Uh, you know, sometimes people choose to treat the Bible like a rule book. Anybody had the Bible thrown at them as a rule book? Anybody? Anybody been hit by the Bible as a rule? <laughs> you know, take the Bible. I was going to bring a Bible just so I could use it as a, as a, as a prop, you know? I want to hit you. I got a really big Bible, too, and I can really hit somebody with it. Some people um, use the Bible as a, as a nice philosophical, theological treatise with which they can withdraw a lot of information and support what they think about the world. Maybe a way of saying, I'm in and you're out. Other people use the Bible, and they think of the Bible, and the claims of the Bible, as really just wonderful spiritual reflection. As perhaps a way for you to touch God and feel touched. Christ's understanding of the Bible is very different from all those. He is saying that the Bible is a book of spiritual power and magnificence and clarity 
meant to describe him and all of who he is. That's, that's what the Bible is. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, until you get that vision for what the Bible is, you, you, you wind up wandering through all these rule book ideas, and you use it, and you use it as a tool, or you use it to defend yourself or attack other people, or you use it to understand more than other people, or you use it to, or, you, or you'll never really submit to its authority because you're always saying, oh, that's an ancient book for ancient people. I don't have to listen to how it tells me to use my body or how to use my tongue or how, what I can look at until you begin to see and until you begin to recapture, until you understand what Christ is saying. The Bible, these ancient texts, are nothing less than the revelation of the Son of God and all of his purposes to love the world and to touch lepers and to touch... Wow! Now... A theodicy question comes in here, which we're going to go into and then, and then be done. Because I want us to... I want us to, to learn from this. Why do people get sick? If the purpose of these ceremonies and the, and the, and the leper having to walk around going, unclean, unclean, you have to, it's, Leviticus says you have to put his hand over the top of his mouth and shout out lest anybody, I'd have to do it so Johnny wouldn't run into me by accident. He can keep his distance. A lot of times they say you can smell lepers before you see them anyway because their flesh is rotting. What's the purpose of sickness? Or what, what, what's the Now, this is why I include the next story. We're going we're gonna to talk about the paralytic next week. The paralytic next week. But Jesus is saying, he seems to be saying, I think he's very clearly saying, that sickness is in the world because of the ruin of sin. That is why sickness is in the world. So when Christ moves and he removes sickness, what's he doing in a sense? What's he, what's he, what's he telling you he's about? What's he, when he touches the leper, what's he telling you he's about? He's about capturing and repairing, right? Repairing and reconciling and healing the world. Wow, that's beautiful. But there's a step people take here. And they try to make a one-to-one -one correspondence for sin. In other words, um, I know why you got cancer, because you left your wife. Have you heard people talk like that? Well, I know why he got... Let me say that categorically, once and for all, and so we can all settle it, because Scripture, because Christ uh, rebukes this very teaching in his own day. The religious people love to say that the reason somebody got sick was because of a sin they committed. Well, it's great. Because let's say Paul and I are, are, are jockeying for who's the pastor of the church and then he gets sick. What do I say? God doesn't love him. He loves me. See? So people use sickness as a weapon to disqualify people. Christ says in John 8, that is not why this happens. Sin, sickness is in the world because of sin, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's just, it's, in a sense, it's just a part of the massive ruin we have wreaked by rejecting God and doing what we please. And it's a part of the picture and a part of the package. But it's not a one-for-one. One. Never has been. Hi, Carrie. It's not a one-for-one. One. What is it? 
in this story, it's an opportunity for Christ to demonstrate with power. He is the Son of God. And if he could heal Ted, my Adam's uncle, from pancreatic cancer, it's a little token. You know, everybody Christ healed died. It's not like he did that good a job. Did you hear what I said? Everybody who Christ healed died. He didn't do that good of a job. Yes, he did do a good job. I'm being facetious. I'm being sharp. I'm being, I'm being sarcastic. He did a good job because all of that was temporary to reveal an eternal love, right? Eternal life. Eternal capture. He, ah. So, well, the answer is, the question here might be, why does... Uh, why do good things happen to bad people? Has anybody ever heard that question? It's a very famous book. It's written by a rabbi. Why do good things happen to bad people? He talks about cancer and the Holocaust and suffering. The ha- why do good things, why does leprosy happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Do you know what's wrong with that question? What leprosy says about the world? What God is saying in sickness? There are no good people. All the scriptures are remarkably, and God is remarkably unromantic about us. (laughs) He never looks and he goes, oh, she's so, no, you're a sinner. But what does he do instead of simply giving an explanation, or perhaps like the Buddha telling people eliminate desire, or perhaps like Muhammad telling you you've got to give more righteous, you have to, your righteousness outweigh your unrighteousness, or, or like the, or like Lao Tzu to tell you to simply let it all hang out and it'll eventually all come together as balances and yin and yang work their way throughout life. Or maybe with Confucius you could do a little more and more disciplined civil life in community and somehow rescue yourself and everybody else from the pain you wreak in your... No, 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 no. Not one of those teachers does what Jesus does. Because what does Jesus do? He touches the left. Why is that so important? Because Christ doesn't answer the problem of sin. He becomes the problem of sin by dying for sinners the way they should have died. By his stripes we are healed. In fact, Isaiah says he took the infirmities on him. It's almost like he's taking the sickness. He's taking, he's taking, and so Jesus is so different from all those thinkers because he doesn't identify the problem of sin and suffering as something out there. He identifies it as something for him to suffer, for him to endure. And so the ultimate answer about, you know, why does sickness happen? I'll tell you this much. We don't always have a clear roadmap as to why people things happen to people. And we don't always get to unpack all the riddles about why cancer strikes and why people die and why kids suffer. And we don't get all the answers, but we do get a God who touches the filthy and right inside touches the damaged and the ruined and the sick and the hungry and the blame and he touches them and he becomes one of them. Do you know what people did when they walked by Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? Unclean, get get, get away. He's cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He had to go outside the city. You know where this lepers lived? Where did the lepers live? Everything about what Christ does is he goes to the cross and the victory he has over there over death is what is being promised in the healing of the leper. And he says, go, as a proof to them, go back. The Bible's all about me. So what do we do today? And if we look back, 
pulling these events 2,000 years ago right now. I have no purpose as a preacher or a teacher other than telling you about Jesus Christ. What's, what, there's, sorry. There's no point to anything else. If, if God became man, then dude, it doesn't matter. This whole city is his for the taking or the rejecting. He's the king. I don't, but I just want to tell you about Jesus. If I can capture, if I, if I can be a servant and today of you in any way, it will be because you saw Jesus a little more clearly, a little more dearly, and you saw that across thousands of years all the promises come true and it's just true today. That's, that's my purpose. Call us to renewed faith in Christ. Call us to come to the table. He touches lepers today. Two, the second thing I'm hoping for is some restoration. Some restoration for you if you feel like sin, your sin has gotten too bad. Maybe you went too far from God. Maybe you, you looked at, touched, said things, took things that didn't belong to you, said things that were hated. In a, maybe you've been in very, very dark paths. I know I've walked some of those paths. I know how dark they get. And when you're on the dark path, it doesn't look like there's a way out, does it? It doesn't look like there's a way back. What is Christ saying in the leper? There's always a way back. Turn to me and ask me. I am willing to be clean. Three, I hope you'll go back to your scriptures. Look, look I have two, two visions that we guys kind of end this up. Some of you, some of you what I just described as 1,800 years of history from Leviticus to Mark to today, are going to sit there and go, dude, I don't think there's any such book exists that could accurately predict Jesus. This was all just made up. Okay. Okay. Read more of it and tell me what you think. Because I think what we have here in the Bible, what we have in the scriptures, is, is, is a book unlike any text or data or, or recording or anything that has ever been. God has spoken in the world. And it's a message of unequaled, unparalleled, immediate, accessible love. It's about Jesus. So I would say those of you who would challenge me about this vision of the Bible I have, that I would ask you to walk into it deeper with me because it is the way Jesus views the Bible. But secondly, some of you guys, I want to encourage you again. I want to encourage you again to new confidence, new joy. You know, David's poetry is our poetry. This is our and it drips a story of faith and life and healing and the love of God and the power of God and the anger of God <laughs> and all the different parts of who he is. It drips it. And as long as we, how many of you have enjoyed the Bible study on Tuesday night? It's been amazing to be able to go, it, just to be in the old texts, reading the story of David, because it bleeds out a world that we, that we, we, we forget. How, haven't, you, haven't you sometimes forgotten just how tender God is? How accessible? Of course you have. I forget. And I would encourage you to, to new boldness to go back to read the prophets. <laughs> new boldness to go back and read Psalms. New boldness to read, be in your scripture because in it is a proof of him. <laughs> a proof of him. A proof of him. He is the son of God. And he came to save unclean people like me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm so, I'm, I'm so in awe of your word, Father. How can it be that you speak life to us like this? And, 
and so freely and fully. Lord, um, touch us today. Some of us need, some of us are so yearning to be able to believe and be touched by you. And um, I pray that you just, you do that, do that work. Wherever I've failed, Father, in the scripture, I pray your spirit would succeed. Wherever I haven't said what I should say, you would speak it now. Whatever I've said that I shouldn't, that you would cause us to forget about it. Call us to come to the table now to be touched anew by the love of our Savior. And I pray this in Christ. Amen.